Well, good morning. Good morning. morning. It's good to see all of you out this morning. I'm glad that you are here with us. It's good to see both of our elders back after not having them last week. Uh, It makes it always interesting for me, especially when Hugh's gone. Because when Hugh's gone, then I've got to do the singing too. And that's fine. I don't mind doing it. Uh, But it is good to have them both back. Today's lesson is the last lesson in our series on Ezekiel. And I think it's been very interesting to go through some of these lessons. And if I counted right, we had nine of them. Um, And uh, some of them came from, uh, I have this old gospel advocate, annual lesson commentary that I've been using from the 60s. And if you've kept up with our Facebook page over the week, um, there was a section in it that they used to do that they would put a scripture for each day, some kind of a scripture reading in there. And some of them were short, some of them were longer. Um, But I tried to uh, post those for each day, including one for today as well. And it turns out that the the last three uh, that we had, the ones from the New Testament, all ended up in my sermon somewhere. Uh, But they were all dealing with the house of God, the dwelling place of God, not just with Israel but also with us today, and that is the theme of our lesson. So I've gathered material from from all kinds of different sources that I had regarding Ezekiel, and uh, so this is what I've put together for you today. There are several ways in which God dwells with man, and I made a list based on a sermon that was delivered by Brother James Boyd from McMinnville. And he's actually one of my teachers in the School of Preaching. But he delivered this sermon in the Memphis School of Preaching Lectureship in 1997. The sermon was called, Things Necessary for God to Dwell in Man's Midst. And these are the things that that he listed, the ways in which God dwells with man. And there are several ways throughout Scripture. One is the sense that God and man are always in each other's presence. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And in Proverbs 15, and verse 3, says that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. In this sense, man's spiritual condition does not affect his relationship with God in that God is present with all. He is is everywhere. He is all-knowing. He is omnipresent. And so he is present with man in the sense that he's with everyone. Whether their works be evil or good, God's presence is there. He sees all. He knows all. But there's also a special and unique sense in which God is with his spiritual children. An intimate association and fellowship with those who come to Him through Christ. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3. 
That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In Psalm 140 and verse 13, Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. God is with His children, those who have chosen to serve Him, and those who dwell in His presence in that way. For the Christian, God is present in our worship. As we are assembled today, we know that God is with us. Psalm 100 verses 1 and 2. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. And though this is not necessarily the context of the passage in Matthew 18 and verse 20, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And certainly when we gather on the Lord's day or at any other time, when we gather, we know that we are in the presence of God. Additionally, the Lord's Supper is described in Scripture as a communion with God and Christ in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 16. Even in death, God is with us. Psalm 23, verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff they comfort me. God is described as the great shepherd, not just here, but elsewhere in Scripture. And certainly it is comforting. We can imagine with the sheep, whenever they see that rod and staff, that they are comforted in knowing that their shepherd is with them, that he is there to guide them. And so we are comforted in the presence of God, even in death. We know that we will all stand before Him in judgment. Hebrews 9 and verse 27, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, we will stand before Him one day. And we certainly need to prepare ourselves for that day. Make sure that we're on the right side. We also have described in Scripture an eternal presence with God for the faithful at Christ's return and the resurrection of the dead. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. We shall always be with the Lord. An eternal presence indeed. Our text for this present lesson deals with the choices we make that lead us into the presence of God. The choice to become a Christian 
a born-again child of God. The choice to serve Him and remain faithful to Him. And as we serve Him in life, so He is with us always, just as He has promised, Matthew 28 and verse 20. And even in death, we are not alone, neither in judgment nor in eternity. God is with us. And when we stray, we are given opportunity to return to the presence of God, as was Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8. And it is in repentance that Israel is given the choice to once again dwell in the presence of God. In Ezekiel chapter 43, we are told of Ezekiel's vision, a vision that is given to him by God. And it describes God's presence with his people and the conditions that they are based upon. The various ways in which God dwells with us today are the same for God's people in early centuries. Although Christians are able to have a, a more intimate relationship with God than Israel through Christ, we see that God's presence was with His people. And His presence continues to be with His people even today. In the time of Ezekiel, God dwelt with His people in the temple as He had promised David. And though the temple had been destroyed, Ezekiel is given the vision of a new temple in which God would dwell with His people. And so we begin reading in Ezekiel 43 and verse 1. Ezekiel 43 and verse 1. Afterward He brought me to the gate the gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with His glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. The visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Shabar, and I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by the way of the gate which faces toward the east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Verse 6, Then I heard Him speaking to me from the temple, while a man stood beside me. And He said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name. They nor their kings by their harlotry, or with the carcasses of their kings on their high places, when they set their threshold by my threshold, and their doorpost by my doorpost, with a wall between them and me, they defiled my holy name by the abominations which they committed. Therefore I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put their harlotry and their carcasses of their kings far away from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. The stipulation 
given that Israel must turn from its evils and idolatry. Uh, from what we read in the text, we learned that they had been burying their dead kings on the high places. They had, had placed their position above that of God. And God was displeased with them. This was certainly not the only thing that they had done. They had committed other great evils against God, and especially in going into the idolatry of other nations. But there was so much that they had done and continued in, and that was why they were punished. And they needed to repent. Truly repent of all their wrongdoing to continue to enjoy the blessings of God. They had lost those for a time in captivity and God promises to return them to their land but only if they make the choice to repent. You see, they needed to choose God. In verses 10 through 12 of Ezekiel 43, Son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangement, its exits and its entrances, its entire design and all its ordinances, all its forms and all its laws, write it down in their sight so that they may keep its whole design and all its ordinances and perform them. This is the law of the temple the whole area surrounding the mountaintop is most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. There was to be no, no risk of, of things being confused, going from uh, one source to the other. As far as uh, God had given His instructions to Ezekiel, He was to write them down so that they could refer back to them again. And we see some of the kings that that recognized God's laws. Josiah is a good example of one who recognized the need for repentance and he went back and did what the old law had, had said. And so they were to follow the instructions of God in the building of this temple. The new temple was to be re rebuilt according to the pattern and the people were to live according to the law. Notice one of the things that is mentioned here is that they needed to realize and be ashamed of their former behavior toward God. There are some people that they, they can't truly repent because they are not ashamed of what they have done. They have to come to not just a realization that they have done wrong, against God and, and maybe others, but they also need to be ashamed of what they have done. If there is no shame, there is no desire to turn away from those wrongs and those evils, and that was the case with, with Israel. They needed to be ashamed of what they had done and to turn away from their evil actions. They needed to change in their heart. And then in changing the heart, they could change their ways and their actions. 
And in their repentance, God promised to dwell with them forever. Ezekiel 43 and verse 9. Though God had left His people in presence, He would soon return to His place among His people in the form of the new temple. That was the, the essence of God's presence among them, first in the tabernacle, then in the temple, and now in this new temple. This new temple, however, was much different than the first. Brother Boyd suggests that the pattern for the second temple was unlike anything that had come before it, and this is what he says of it. The details for this temple and the reinstitution of the worship that is included was impossible. The size specified made a physical temple impossible, as well as the topography and physical features of the land in and around Jerusalem. The sacrifices to be offered were different from the former days under the law of Moses. And I even did a little research on the uh, just comparing the, the temple, the old temple, with this new temple, or with the, the new temple that was to be. Rabbi Beryl Wine uh, from JewishHistory.org lists several differences between the first and the second temples, meaning the one that was rebuilt by Zerubbabel later on. The Holy Spirit, the eternal flame, the absence of the Ark of the Covenant, and the lack of splendor because the people were not as rich as they had been. They didn't have the resources that they once had. And so the second temple in its rebuilding was not as, as magnificent as the first in the materials that they used. It was later uh, refurbished to some degree, especially whenever Herod uh, comes into uh, play as far as the, the temple is concerned. But even the, the new temple, the second temple, was much different than the first. This new temple, might I suggest, is not the second temple that was later to be rebuilt. But because of the differences in pattern, it is believed that the temple referred to in Ezekiel 43 is definitely not the first, but probably not the second either. It is believed that the temple of Ezekiel 43 is looking further forward than even this second temple. So we come to the Lord's church. The temple of Ezekiel's vision must be a description of the Lord's church. Notice that the temple of Ezekiel 43 was not to be defiled. It was not to be defiled. If we try to make this comparison with the second temple... We understand that it could be defiled. 
Did not Jesus drive out those who defiled it in Matthew 21 and verse 13? Those who had made it a den of thieves? And even in the, the previous chapter in Ezekiel 42 and verse 20, there was a particular wall included for the purpose of separating the holy areas from the common. It's to separate the holy areas from the common. So, if this were to be talking about the second temple, then, then we would have to understand that it couldn't be defiled. And, and what we understand about it is that it could be defiled and it was defiled. The Lord's church, however, cannot be defiled. The Lord's church cannot be defiled. Though we may defile ourselves, we cannot defile the Lord's church. Though we may bring shame and reproach upon ourselves and even upon God by our actions, these do not translate to the Lord's church. The exaggerated size of the temple, Brother Boyd suggests, is further evidence that this temple is more than a material temple. That Ezekiel was permitted to look unto the coming of the church of Christ. We find in the New Testament that the dwelling place of the Lord is in His house. The dwelling place of the Lord is in His house. The question becomes, where is the house of God today? Or what is the house of God today? Look with me in Ephesians chapter 2. Let's look at verses 19 through 22. Ephesians 2, beginning with verse 19. Here Paul says this of the church. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself, being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Notice especially what is said in that last verse, verse 22, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. In John chapter 15, verses 5 through 10, these are the words of Jesus. John 15, beginning with verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch, and is withered, and they gather together, and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me, 
My words abide in you. You will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Notice a brief outline of what Jesus has just said. First of all, if we abide in Him, we know that He abides in us. We also know that if we abide in Him, His words abide in us. As the Father loved Him, He also loves us, and we abide in His love. If we keep His commandments, we abide in His love. Just as He also kept the commandments of His Father, so we are to keep the commandments as well. Paul goes on to tell us, that God dwells in hearts, not physical temples. God dwells in hearts, not physical temples. Look at the, the sermon that he delivered in Acts chapter 17, in verse 24. Acts 17, in verse 24. God who made the world and everything in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. He does not dwell in temples made with hands. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 22, 2 Corinthians 1, 22, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts, which is where He dwells, in our hearts as a guarantee. God doesn't dwell in temples. He doesn't dwell in cathedrals. He doesn't dwell in buildings. He, he really doesn't dwell here unless we are here. God dwells in our hearts. That's what we are to learn. That's what Ezekiel's vision was all about. It's about the church in which God would no longer dwell in temples. But He would dwell in the hearts of man. God dwells in our hearts, yes. But we are given choice in the matter. Again, we have the, going back to the, the introduction, we have the sense in which God is with all people at all times. God's eyes are on the wicked just as much as they are on the righteous. But other than that, we are given choice. We are given choice in whether or not to, to be or, or to become Christians. We, we are given choice as to, to how we, 
we serve Him, and, and if we are going to serve Him in the right way, if we are going to worship God, we are given choice in that matter. And, and how that affects the day of judgment and, and our eternity. We are given choice in those things. It's based on how we live, how we choose to live. For the Lord to dwell within us, we must choose to be His children. We must choose to keep His commandments. And we choose obedience to His will and faithfulness. Obedience to His will being exactly what we're told to do in Scriptures. That, that in our faith, in, in Christ, in God, we are also to confess that faith. We are to repent. We're to change our heart, change our action, change our mindset, change our attitude, change our life. We must repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. According to what Peter said in Acts 2 and verse 38. But that's a choice that we make. When, when the Jews asked Peter the question, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They had the option, they had the opportunity to choose otherwise. But they chose Christ. And that day about 3,000 souls were baptized and added to the Lord's church. And we are given choice in that matter of whether or not we will serve God in the way that He has set forth for us to do so. I want us to go back for a moment to verses 10 and 11 of Ezekiel 43. Israel had turned to evil. They had made a choice to turn away from God. And in verse 10 of Ezekiel 43, Son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangement, its exits and its entrances, its entire design and all its ordinances, all its forms and all its laws. Write it down in their sight so that they may keep its whole design and all its ordinances and perform them. Ezekiel was to give Israel that choice. He was to prescribe to them what God has told them to do and they made the choice of whether or not to follow or to serve Him. Israel was in need of repentance. Realizing their wrongs and feeling shame over them. Turning away from their wrongs to keeping God's commandments. And we too may be in need of repentance. See, just because you've been baptized for the remission of your sins doesn't mean that you're a faithful child of God. It doesn't mean that you've continued in faithfulness. Maybe you've wandered away and maybe you need to come back. So it may be that we too are in need of repentance. Realizing our wrongs and feeling shame over them. Turning away from our wrongs to keeping... God's commandments. Israel 
was in need of reform. And while the church itself is holy and righteous, it may be that we need to come back to it. Maybe we need to be restored to the church. In history, we read of what we refer to as the great falling away. and We studied a little bit about that. There was a time when, when so many people departed from the faith and turned to denominationalism and, and all other kinds of isms, but they weren't the church that God wanted them to be. The church itself was fine. There was nothing that needed to be reformed in the church. The people be, needed to be restored to the church. And it may be that individuals today still need to be restored to the church. Israel as a nation was in need of being restored to God's service. Maybe we need to reform our lives so that God can once again dwell within us. As Israel needed to come back, they needed to repent, so it is that maybe we need to repent so that we can be faithful children of God so that He will dwell within us. Maybe it is that you stand outside of Christ this morning. Maybe you've never obeyed the gospel. Maybe you needed to come back. But whatever your need may be, whether it be obedience, whether it be repentance, you need to ask for prayers. If there's some way that we can help you, we want to do that. If you'll give us the opportunity to help you. As together we stand and as we sing.